You're listening to The Way Home with Daniel Darling, a proud member of the Venom Audio Network. Welcome, my friends, to another episode of The Way Home Podcast. I'm so glad you're joining us today. Uh, We have a great guest in line uh, for you today. But before we get to that, I want to tell you a little bit about a few things that uh, we're working on. First of all, I'm recording from uh, Texas Baptist College and Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, where uh, I'm getting set to begin teaching our faith and culture concentration here in the college. So if you have a college-age student that uh, you're interested in, in having to come and learn you know, really how to uh, know theology, know how it interacts with public life and public theology and uh, public service, uh, this would be a great opportunity. You can go to texasbaptistcollege.com to check it out. Also, want to let you know my book, The Characters of Creation, is still out there you know, wherever books are sold. Uh, it goes through each of the um, characters in the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. I, I really think there's a lot of confusion in our world today, and a lot of those answers can be found in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Who am I? Why am I here? Where are we going? So check that out, uh, The Characters of Creation. You can go to my website, danieldarling.com, to find out more or check it out at your favorite retailer. Okay, I want to talk about the guest that's coming up on this show. Uh, Kelly Capick has written an amazing book called You're Only Human. And uh, it's a book that really centers on what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be made in the image of God, which is an important topic. But most, more specifically, on a topic that I think not a, enough of us think about. It's the topic of what he calls, what theologians have called, finitude. That's a fancy word for saying limits. And his thesis is that as creatures made by God, we were made with limits. We can only do so much. That's not because of the fall. That's not because of sin. It's it's simply because God has made us not to be God, but to be creatures and to be humans. This has a big impact on the way we see ourselves and the way we see others. I really appreciated this book, and you're going to appreciate my conversation with Dr. Kelly Capick. Uh, Kelly teaches at Covenant College in Chattanooga. He's a well-known author and scholar. You can read his work at a lot of places like Christianity Today and elsewhere. You're going to enjoy this conversation with Kelly Capick. Kelly, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. That This is great. I, I, I first am curious about, you know, you've explored a lot of topics in terms of the, theological topics. You've been teaching mm-hmm. for a long time. What prompted you to um, say, you know, I want to look at the idea of human limits or mm-hmm. finitude. Finitude is the fancy uh, theological term. What, yeah. what prompted that? Yeah, in some ways, just to kind of help listeners in case they don't know, finitude is a fancy term for just meaning limits uh, mm-hmm. and in Christian circles, it's really what we mean by creature. (laughs) You're either creator or creature, and um, we're creatures, and by necessity means we have limits. And in terms of your question, it's not an it's not an exaggeration to say I've I've been thinking about this for over 20 years, and there's some theological reasons for that. There's some personal reasons. Some of it is my wife went through cancer in 2008, and then has been dealing with chronic pain since 2010, and long story short, it's just on the personal side, you know, we're both, I don't know if we're type A, but you know, driven people and all of that. And you just see 
we thought we were cutting back, cutting back, and you realize, nope, we got to cut back more. <laughs> and in some ways, kind of having to, through personal experience, really come to terms with limits. Um, and some of it's also kind of theological interest in terms of, I think, evangelicals and much of the church, we have a what I would say is a weak view of creation. We kind of debate about the origins of it, but don't think about what it means now. So those are yeah. some of the I, reasons. I really agree with you on that. And, and I think there's sort of a renaissance in thinking about creation, but we're, we're so impoverished on that, I think, in mm. many ways. You know, when I was working on my book, The Dignity Revolution, you know, the concept mm. of human dignity, the the way that the Bible describes what it means to be human has always struck me. You know, the rich language that Moses uses about the creation of humans as opposed to, say, the creation of the rest of creation. Like, with humans, God sculpts humans with his hands from the dust of the ground and breathes into humans the breath of life. So I've always been fascinated by that. Um, but when I did my book and I've talked about this, I've usually focused on the fact that, you know, the Imago Dei, human dignity, means we should think how we should think about others, how we should think about our neighbors. Your book made me really think about how, you know, uh, how we should think about ourselves, mm. you know, as creatures. And the idea of finitude, the idea of, of having limits. And one of the things that you really hit over and over in the book that I think is just profound is, and it's simple, but the idea that we're creatures with limits is not a, it's, it's a feature, not a bug. Mm. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, can you explore that a little bit? Cause I think uh, sometimes we attribute things to the fall mm-hmm. that were actually there by design. Yeah, no, that's great. Thank you. Yeah. I, I, I like how you put it. I, I do think, um, it's a feature, but we do often think of it as, as a, as a bug, this idea of limits. And so I, you know, I tell the story occasionally, but it, it, it is true. You know, often I would put my head on the pillow at night and just feel kind of a surprising wave of shame or guilt. And as I explore it, lots of times it wasn't because I was thinking about this cruel word I said, or this, you know, action I did. It was, I felt this guilt or shame because I hadn't done enough in the day. And as a theologian made me explore, what, what is that? Is it, should I feel guilty and shame that I didn't get more done? And when you say it's, it's part of, it's a feature, not a bug, I think that is part of what I've had to come to terms with, right? That limits are what make us, here's, here's the feature. They're, they're what drive us together. They're what drive us to God. They're what we are. We are by nature dependent beings. That's what it is to be a creature, but we live in denial of that. So we're, we're by, before there was sin or a fall, we were made to be dependent on God, dependent on our neighbors, dependent on the earth. And that dependence is the part of the beauty of being a creature and rather than a problem with it. And I think, you know, for me personally, and many of us in this Western culture, if we hear the word dependent, doesn't that just sound negative? It does. You know? Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. And uh, it made me think a lot about, um, and I think I first start, started thinking about this when I wrote my book on um, the digital world and how to live online and all that stuff. And one of the things I thought about is... We live in this digital age where one of the illusions of the age is that we can be all-knowing and all-powerful. Like you think with with my phone in my hand, I can look up anything and know mm. anything in seconds. I can have anything delivered to me at my fingertips, whether it's food or a ride yeah. or a vacation. And it's the illusion of control. And I think I saw, I think it was Jen Michelle, who's a writer, 
uh, based in Canada, she said something like the original lie was that we could be all knowing and that we weren't we weren't made we weren't yeah. built to be all knowing. And so I think about when you talk about finitude and limits, that original temptation to Eve was a kind of lie that says, hey, not only can you be a creature dependent on God, a God who cares for you, loves you, but actually you can be God. Mm. You can you can do all this stuff. It really goes back to that original temptation, right? Wasn't wasn't that temptation a sort of to turn them away from their limits? Yeah, I, I do think in many ways for the narrative of Adam and Eve, you really do get this, the temptation can be framed in terms of God gave all of these things. And the one thing he didn't give because it wouldn't be good for them, they take, right? Yeah. And yeah. sometimes I think, you know, people will, well, why didn't God just let them have everything or do everything? And it, is God just kind of doing an arbitrary test to just see how they'll do? And I think sometimes like, we treat it that way. And I, I think, no, 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 it's more like when you have an infant and which in the early church, the ancient church, they would often talk about Adam and Eve almost like they were children growing. They were not full, you know. Not, not literal anyways, but, but the idea is if you have a, if you have an infant and they're playing in your kitchen and, and he starts to take a fork or their finger and, and put it to the, the electrical socket, we don't say, yeah, do it. <laughs> we say, don't do that. But here's the surprise. It's not that electricity is bad. It's just that the child is not made to be able to handle it. It, what is a good gift and actually brings about great things can kill this child, right? And and so God gives us all of this, but we take the one thing not given, even though he withheld it because it wouldn't be appropriate or right for us. So yes, I do think there is this rejection of restraint and not seeing that restraint can be for our flourishing um, does go way, way back. Yeah. And it, you talked about this, but in the modern age, there's just a temptation to sort of be, you know, as Carl Truman says, you know, the autonomous self. Right. Or um, I think Alan Noble said that a lot in his book. But this idea that that we can bear the things we weren't meant to bear, so we can bear the weight of having to know everything, but bear the weight of being powerful. But even I, I like a lot about your book when it comes to in terms of limits, when it comes to what we can produce and and put out, because there's a kind of subtle. Thing and I, I fight this myself that um, you know of pushing ourselves to the limits, but beyond the limits. Uh, that you know, hey, we, it, we can work as much as we can work, and it doesn't matter if we mm. take if we rest. It doesn't matter if we take time off. That you know, mm. we're almost telling ourselves we're superhuman. You you yeah. you talk a lot in there, and sometimes that's held up as being um, noble. Oh yeah, the godly, guy the yeah. guy. Yeah, godly even the guy that doesn't ever sleeps. Yeah, that works himself ragged. Mm. Uh, that it, all those things. That's actually not godly, is it? Yeah, that's not how. No. We, that's not how we were made, right? It's a. It, it is such a massive problem, and and I wrestle. I mean, part of the reason I wrote this is I'm I wrestle through these things myself, right? I and you know, before I say more, it, it is very common. People start to hear me talk about this, or start to read, and they think. Is he saying that we can just be lazy? Is he saying not to really try or not develop his sports? That's not that's not what I'm saying. Although I, I would want to carefully think through that. But it is an it is very interesting. As you were talking, I was just thinking recently, I was speaking to a couple hundred pastors. Um, pastors are just worn out. And I had a I had a pastor come up to me and he had a mask on and he just said, 
Um, this isn't a for or against mass. That's not the point. He, 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 it just represented he was not feeling well. And he came up to me. I didn't know him. And he said, he said, until about two months ago, my wife would have said I'm the Energizer Bunny. He was in his mid-40s. He could just keep going. He had always pushed. He was amazing. He was this pastor that, you know, church is thriving. And then his body, you know, uh, as the New York Times bestseller says, the body keeps a score. And his body just shut down. And he lifted up his hand and showed me. And it was literally shaking. And he said he had to leave ministry. And his he just, his, his body's, and then 40 minutes later, couple, uh, another pastor came up to me and he said, he didn't completely leave ministry, but left to a less stressful one. And he said, when, when he did that and pastors in the area found out independently, two pastors came to him and privately said within the last year, I've considered suicide. So I only mentioned that to say what sounds like godliness. I now hear on such a regular basis from pastors, from leaders, from stay at home parents, this pressure of unrealistic expectation has massive consequences. And when we baptize it in the church, the the consequences are destructive, not just for those individuals, but often for their families and communities. Yeah. I, I want to dig into that a little bit, Kelly, because I find for myself where I'm most tempted to overwork and not get rest and put the world on my shoulders mm. is in the area of my gifting. Yeah, you know, when you're doing right. things that you know you're that God has gifted you to do and you enjoy doing to mm-hmm. me, that's the area where I'm tempted to just not have any limits in terms of right. working. Um, and so I'd love for you to talk about that. And why is it so hard sometimes for us to just fill those empty spaces with, well, I'll just do some more work or I'll, yeah. in, instead of resting or uh, things like that? Why is it that we think that resting, relaxing is somehow we're cheating God or we're we're slacking? Yeah. No, it's a, it's a massive problem. It's interesting. You know, we have 10 commandments and we, I'm not interested in a debate about Sabbath, but it is interesting that we just kind of like, no, that one doesn't really apply. <laughs> and it's funny when I'm in certain circles where there's been Sabbatarian debates and that kind of thing, uh-huh. it does people get nervous for right reasons because it's a legalistic conversation. But when I'm in other Christian circles where they haven't talked about that, and I said, do you know that God kind of made us with this one in seven pattern? where it is good to rest, to just worship, to feast, to, you know, uh, this kind of thing. And that that's a foretaste of glory. And that's how he made us. They're like, no, not really. And, and I teach at a Christian college and here's a sign of just how bad it's gotten. We have students, uh, probably the majority of them who will actually feel guilty if they don't study on Sunday, right? this day of rest, whether or not it's Sunday anyways, but they, they feel guilty and not just like internally like their parents and indirectly like God. We really think God expects us to be machines and just keep going. And, and it's, it's, it's unbelievable. I I remember years ago, Bruce Walke, who's amazing, right? He's two PhDs. He knows Hebrew better than almost anyone. One of his degrees is from Harvard and, um, super brilliant. And he was, I don't know at the time, maybe he was in his 60s when he said this, but he just basically said, I'm not really sure a a Christian could ever be the best Old Testament scholar in the world. He said something like that. And I'm like, what in the world are you talking about? But his point was in the academic world, and those who aren't won't totally get this, but the amount of devotion and dedication that takes of your time, unless maybe, unless you're in a monastery or something, you would have to so neglect everything else 
you know, anyways, and, and however you would qualify best, but his point was just even something like studying the scriptures to, to be faithful to the commandments of Christ and to what he calls us to means love. <laughs> and that, that looks different than constant productivity. And, and the last thing I'll say here is one of the strong convictions I've come to is, and the sign to me of how off we've become is when efficiency and productivity become our highest values, we're in trouble. Because God loves productivity. He's very efficient, but they're not his highest values. Love is. And God's comfortable taking his time. And the one of the most inefficient things you can ever do is love. And so if you love, you're probably not going to be the very best in your field. <laughs> and, you know, that might upset some people and we'd want to talk through and qualify it. But I, in our day, that's, that's real. Yeah. Does that sound crazy? Do you want to tell me what you think? No, I think that's true. Um, and that's something Mm. that I don't think we often think about in some ways, Kelly, what you're saying is to acknowledge our limits and to rest in some ways is an act of worship, right? To say, you know, one of the things I'm learning about what it means to be human, one of the things you know, we typically read in Genesis about the Imago Dei. We think, okay, this shows that humans have value and worth and dignity, which it absolutely does. But it also shows it also shows that we're not God. Isn't that one of the messages of the first part of Genesis, that we're not God? And so I think about this when it comes to rest. When I rest, I am in some ways acknowledging that I am not God, right? That That there's a God who doesn't rest, who upholds the universe. No, that's so good. I mean, one of the fun parts for me to, to think about and write research and write on in the, in, in this shows up near the end of the book is kind of a theology of sleep. And part of it's because I, you know, I'm 50 this year and sleep is difficult. I'll wake up at three in the morning with all the worries over the world on me and stuff. And the kind of thinking through, cause the Bible does have this theology of sleep and, and simply put the reason you and I can sleep is because God never does. And sleep is actually an act of of faith, right? When you're on the front lines, you can't sleep unless you have someone watching your back, right? And and part of what Christians offer the world is this act of worship where we can say, no, 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 you can sleep because this God never does, and you can trust him with your very life. Um, and there's just so much to unpack in terms of that. It's really beautiful, but we think like sleep is a spiritual discipline, it takes faith to actually go, I'm done, right? One of the things my wife is so good, it's very hard for us to let ourselves be done, right? My wife will look at me sometimes and say, hey, you're done for the day. Go watch ESPN, right? Oh, I like that. <laughs> and and yeah. but that's really beautiful because if I say it to myself, it's hard to believe. But she's like, no, 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 you need to, you need to have some space. We need to do a different thing here. You need to, anyways, you don't just need to constantly produce um, and that that's hard. That's really good. I want to ask a couple questions related to that because you you talk in here about how because of our finitude, because of our dependence on God, it also makes us dependent on others, which is why mm. we need the church, which is why we need the body. Um, yeah. And good. you know, I think the older I get, I'm realizing when you think about spiritual giftedness, we often think of ourselves and our gifts. But I'm realizing we also it also helps us appreciate the gifts of others, the gifts that we don't have, right? So talk about finitude and, and sort of dependence on others and dependence on the body. 
Yeah, thank you. That's so good. Yeah, so one of the chapters you may remember on on humility, and it was really fun to explore and write about humility because I do think when you ask most of us as Christians, just kind of informally say, hey, why should we be humble? Our immediate response is because we're sinners. And it, it is true we're sinners, and it's true that because we're sinners, that should encourage us to be humble. But what I actually think when we try and build the foundation of humility upon the idea of sin, it distorts all of it, which is why we so commonly get distorted views of humility. So, so when, when you, here's a sign that you've built it on, on sin. So if, if you think the reason we're supposed to be humble is because we're sinners and you feel like you're lacking humility, then the way to cultivate humility is focus on what a bad sinner you are, which itself is problematic in all kinds of ways. So yes, we need to acknowledge sin, but here's the theological question. Even if there were no sin and fall, should we be humble, right? And the answer is yes, because the reason we should be humble is because we're creatures. And as we said earlier, as a creature, even if there are no sin, we're made to be dependent on God, others, and the earth. And so that means humility doesn't just say, I'm really sorry, can you forgive me? Although it does say that in a fallen world, but it also says things like, can you help me? Um, I don't understand. You know, it says, wow. And, and, and so on a practical level, I often encourage Christians, listen, you, there are ways we can cultivate humility. That's not arrogant to say, and, and fundamental to it is kind of what you were hinting at. Learn to celebrate what God is doing in other people. That is a spiritual discipline rather than seeing each other as competition and we how have to somehow win and we spiritualize it so we don't tell people that's what's going on, but it's often what's going on in our heart. But no, 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 learn to genuinely encourage and delight in other people and you will see we, we actually can start to manifest the reality of humility in our lives because we get to depend on God, others, and the earth, and we, we celebrate. That's what's called gratitude, thankfulness, right? That kind of thing. You hit on something there. Why is, like, I find in my own life, the hardest thing for me to do is to ask for help or to mm. accept charity. You know, so when I was briefly unemployed last year, people reached out to help us, and I, it was hard for me, Kelly. Yeah. I mean, seriously, if you want to pay me to write an article, easy, or speak, yeah. or write a book chapter. But when people just said, no, I want to give you money, mm. I, I, it was, it was really hard. It was hard for me to say, yeah, yeah I'm just going to accept that. Now, my yeah. wife, my, it wasn't so hard for my wife because she said, we need that. Let's just take it, you know? Yeah. But, um, yeah. you know, there's, there, we think that's humility, but that's actually pride, right? And, and thinking, no, no, I've got this. I, I'm in control of my life. I don't need anyone helping me. Yeah. No, it's it's amazing, isn't it? Because there's so much culturally that does feed this myth of autonomy, right? So we're hungry and we go to the grocery store and we buy chicken breast that's all prepackaged and ever and eggs and we turn on the spigot and water comes out and it's all. But the reality is if you explore any of those things, there's so much dependence that, you know, and in fact, in our day right now, with kind of in a post-COVID world and there's all these supply chain issues, people are starting to realize that, right? Like they're trying to, lumber is very hard to come across and all these kind of things. You realize, no, 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 this world is completely interconnected and it always has been. It's not, it's not that you and I are talking about something new. We're just acknowledging what's always been the case. And I, I completely agree. There's something we are called to give 
But this is part of the beauty is we are also always called to receive. And and a colleague of mine, Brian Ficker, who wrote When Helping Hurts, and he and I did a follow-up volume. Yeah, yeah, Brian Ficker, the economist. And um, we wrote a follow-up volume called Becoming Whole. But part of what you see is well-meaning Christians, we generously give to people. We like that. But actually, part of what needs to happen, the whole dignity thing that you're talking about is we also have to recognize we are impoverished without these people. We have stuff to learn from them and they all have assets and gifts. So we can't, it can't be a one-way street. We give and we all receive. Um, and that's part of humility. It's part of the good way God made the world. And the reason people are giving to you when during the season of unemployment is they have received from you and they want to receive again in the future. And that's, that doesn't have to be transactional. It could be relational. Right. Mm, that's so good. And I wonder too, Kelly, if some of our activism is driven by a little bit of that, where mm. we want it to be one way because we want to be seen as the sort of white knight that's coming in, the one that's yeah, the heroic. heroic person. And in some ways, Correct me if I'm wrong. Are we not taking on a more godlike posture than just being humans with limits, right? And yeah. it would seem to me that understanding creaturely limits helps us focus our activism to say, look, I can't save the world and I can't do all these things, but here's the one or two things where God has given me influence and resources and time and I can devote it to that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's one of these fascinating things um, because I do think the scriptures call us to care about things like injustice and poverty alleviation. I, I do actually think that those are not just kind of contemporary concerns. Those are John Calvin, you right. know, uh, was talking about these the early church. Um, it was part of the whole liturgy. Um, but yes, there is this, it's, it's interesting. Thomas Merton, who's no like conservative, you know, uh, theologian or anything, Back in, it was about 40 or 50 years ago, he actually talked about activism, that it can become a form of violence mm -hmm. against ourselves even. Um, and so, as you said, there is something to recognize. We are called to be active, but we are one person in one family or one, you know. So I do, want, uh, as you know, there's a, there's a chapter on the church. And for me, the big aha experience on the church was to realize Listen, Jesus isn't messing around when he says in Matthew 25, you know, sheep and the goats, the sheep, what separates is, do you visit the prisoners? Do you clothe the naked? Do you do these kind of things? And then we wonder, well, are any of us sheep? And the big aha for me was it takes the entire church to be the one body of Christ. So actually, let's not undermine what Jesus says. We do need to visit prisoners. We need to care for the naked and clothe the, but it takes all of us to be the body of Christ. And I think that's part of it. And, and so, as you know, and people in ministry know, you constantly have about 15% of the church doing all the work. And so what happens is when we talk about needs, people either think I have to do them all or I'm not going to do any of them. And we know that that doesn't work. When you, we don't, when we're not engaged at all, it actually breeds apathy and, and it distorts the faith. And when we try and do it all, we see burnout and bitterness. And, and you see that with activism a lot. After a certain amount of time, kind of a self-righteousness and anger can, can grow in any of us and all of that. So how do we care about a variety of issues and even care deeply about stuff that we ourselves can't do? 
right? Um, and and so I, I I'm that's a long way of saying I think the entire church really matters, and we need a more communal vision for that yeah. kind of and, thing. And and when we recognize our limits, we realize we we can't do this ourselves. You know, yeah, uh, we need others. I even think that about parenting. You know, the older I get, and yeah. I have two teens and two preteens, I realize. Like we're the prime primarily responsible, but we need the body. We need I need I need parents in the church who are a few miles ahead of me who can tell me here's what we did and here's what you know. And so I think that's really important. I want to talk about creaturely limits and and, and finitude, this concept of finitude in leadership. Because we've talked about we've talked mm. about stewarding ourselves, which is so important. But when mm. I think about this, I also think about leaders and leaders need to recognize the limits of those they lead, right? So a lot of times leadership material will will rightly say, hey, leaders, make sure you set aside time and you are able to sort of, you know, you're not overworking yourselves and your Sabbath and rest and have good rhythms. But a lot of times we want that for ourselves, but we don't want that for those around us. So how do leaders yeah. lead well this way to think, hey, the people that I, that are working for me are not machines and yeah. they also need to have good rhythms. Like if I have good rhythms at the expense of my people not having good rhythms, then something's wrong, right? Yeah, it's fascinating. I'm so nervous about saying this next thing uh, because it could be misunderstood, but there's all kinds of non-Christian literature that's showing more and more giving employees rest and making reasonable limits and that kind of thing actually can create more productivity. The reason why I don't want to say that is then People say, yes, see, look, and you get Google and stuff. They're trying to figure out how to make it as efficient as possible. So they'll give you rest, but just because they want to suck more work out of you, right? So that I don't think as Christians, that's why we give rest. But it is interesting. It makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I do think as leaders, like, like pastors, for example, one of the challenges can be to remember what it's like to work a full day of work get home, have a meal, and then all of a sudden be trying to do a bunch of stuff for the church, right? And you will just, you have to recognize the demands. And part of what's happening is in our day, employers are taking up more and more of people's time. Mm. And so that's a squeeze. And then the church is feeling it. And and so you're, you're just getting really squeezed. So I think one of the beautiful things the church can do in our day, it's a kind of a new apologetic, is to present a different way of being human. And I think we can help people create an imagination for a more humane world. And so we need to be together enough to help that imagination be sparked, but not so fill people's schedules that they're just constantly exhausted. And it takes courage to say no. Not it, not so much to bad things, but to good things, right? Um, and we are packing this out. And this this catechism starts when kids are in elementary school, and we pack their days. And in the book, you know, I talk about high school starts at you know, you leave at seven thirty, you finish at three thirty, you go to an extracurricular, you run home for dinner real quick, and then you study till eleven, and then you you do that, and then you go to college, and it's the same. And Colleges are all, we're just dealing with kids just fried. This experiment is reaching its end. It's not working. But then we think, well, they've been catechized. They've been shaped like that for now two decades. What do we expect them to live like? And so I do think 
there, I think that is much of the background for why there's so much binge watching, why there's so much scrolling on phones. I think we blame the internet and phone scrolling for our problems. And I think a lot of it is a way of escaping the endless demands on us. And so rather than constantly blaming the technology, although technology can be a real challenge, let's look at these deeper issues. What is causing us to so want to escape mindlessly? Mm. That that's good. I mean, I, gosh, I think about in terms of leadership, when I pastored, one of the things I realized and was sobered by was in some ways I need to manage how much burden we put on our people. Because those of us who are like, if you're, and I've seen the bubble where you're in full-time ministry and you're, you're thinking about this stuff every day because you're paid to think about that. Right. Right. But the average person has a job, they have kids. And if we're not careful, we'll put a burden that, hey, if you're not at every single church function, you're unfaithful to God. And people don't want to be unfaithful to God. So we can actually run our people ragged in a way that starves their spiritual lives. So I I think that's such a good word, Kelly. Uh, I want to ask you two more questions because I know we're a little bit over time. But you you talk in the beginning, and I just love the, the way that you open up about sort of the way that Jesus looks at us in terms of our limits and he sees us limits and he loves us for the way that we are, not for how efficient we can be or how much we can produce, which I think is so important and, and actually should reflect how we see others, right? Like, so if I'm leading, I should, I shouldn't see my employees as machines, but as people. And if I'm pastoring, I shouldn't see people coming in the door as like, Ooh, what can they do for this church? But how can I, Mm. but I'm thinking specifically of like, moms who are listening mm. and moms who are worn out. They got young kids. They're trying to s- feed their spiritual lives. They're trying to be all that they can be, but it's, it's really wearying. And so to hear that, Hey, you have limits and that's okay. You know, you're enough uh, and God loves you the way you are. So talk a little bit about how that works with us when, you know, this idea of um, your first chapter is, you know, basically have I done enough? And your second chapter is, does God love uh, like me? Yeah. So talk talk about yeah. how those things work together. I, th- I just think that's a really important message for those who are burnt out and worn out. Yeah, no, that's good. Thank you for those questions. Yeah, there is this um, part of the whole idea of finitude or limits is our particularity, right? Um, you know, I'm me, you're you. And there there is a particularity and we... And Christian circles rightly recognize the problem of sin for those listeners who know what this means. But I'm, I'm now, pres- I've been a Presbyterian for decades and we take sin real seriously as a Reformed theologian. But I've become nervous because all of a sudden I, I realize sometimes our people think the most true thing about them is that they're sinners. And, the, and we forget, no, 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 it's like your stuff on dignity. No, 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 you were made in the image of God. And God doesn't hate you. He hates the sin that's distorting you. And we have to think through that very carefully, and it would take a longer conversation. But um, Augustine, just so people don't think, well, Capic's just light on people, right? I I think Augustine brilliantly put it one time, and and I read this in him after I finished the book, so I'm including it in something I'm working on now. But he has this great point where he says, God loves what he made, and he's talking about us as humans made in his image as particular creatures. But he hates what we've made. And in that context, he's talking about sin. And, and so the, the question is, when it talks about 
putting sin to death and all of that, does God hate us? No, the point is God's going to deal with our sin, not because he hates us, but because he loves us enough that he wants us to become the people he made us to be and to flourish, right? And so in that chapter, for example, does God love me? I found if I, if I don't, if I ask Christians, does God love you? We all say, yes, of course he loves me. But if you change the question and you ask, do you think God likes you? That is an unnerving question. And to put it differently, when I deal with students, if I ask students, do you think your parents love you? Almost inevitably, they will say yes, because they know parents have to love their kids. But if I ask a kid, a college student, do you think your dad or do you think your mom likes you? It's amazing how often tears immediately come to their eyes. Because the idea of love is like this obligation because we're their children. But the idea that a parent actually delights in their kid is unnerving. Well, that is revealing because what do we think about our Heavenly Father? We think much less. As John Owen says, we often have have um, these problematic uh cruel views of, of our father in heaven who actually loves us, who delights in us, right? Who, who sings and rejoices over us. So it's not that God is indifferent to sin. He's holy. He's going to deal with sin. He's not indifferent to it, but he loves what he made. And so that's, that's fundamental to understanding why sin is such a problem for him, why he doesn't love the sin and is going to deal with it. So anyways, I, I, in, in that chapter, it's worth exploring, does God like you, right? Um, and then, and then for the mother or, or, or the father who's staying home with the kids, or, or even if they're not, they're just exhausted, um, learning that that it's okay. Like your child was never meant to be good at every sport or every instrument. Your child can only know so much. They don't have to, for us in our, in our family, one of the things that became very important was to cultivate in our kids celebrating each other rather than com- constantly competing, right? And finding things where one is better than the other and like, no, 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 we are going to celebrate. We're not going to belittle. We're not going to downplay one's victories in order to, no, no, no. We're going to celebrate. And it's not always even. And and other people who weren't in the family. Um, and, and the truth is, as parents, you can't be everywhere. You can't know everything. We're all going to, we're in the sinful world. We're all going to let down the kids. But what does faithfulness look like? And that's, I guess, my encouragement is as a creature, your goal is not perfection. Your goal is faithfulness. And so what does it look like in your time and your space with your um, energy and limits and abilities? Because you are giving something your kids that's particular, that God gave to you to give to them. That's so good. And and to know that God loves us, not for what we think we sh- are supposed to be, but mm. for who we are. Um, and uh, such a great... Such a great word. Well, I want to encourage folks listening to get this great book by Kelly Capick, You're Only Human, How Your Limits Reflect God's Design and Why That's Good News. It's a great book. I want to encourage folks to get it. We'll have links in the show notes. Um, Kelly, thanks for joining me today. And I uh, really appreciate your work and what you're doing on this. And I uh, hope hope folks will, uh, will engage with it. Thanks so much. It's been really fun to spend this time with you. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this edition of The Way Home Podcast with Daniel Darling. For more information, you can visit danieldarling.com. 
If you do like this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast catcher. We also encourage you to rate and review so others can know about the podcast. You can follow me at at Dan Darling on Twitter or go to my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Daniel M. Darling. Thank you for listening again to the Way Home Podcast. Podcast.